Hello and welcome to A Beautiful Faith. I am joined once again by Henry, my lovely co-host who I have missed dearly over the last week since we last recorded. Aww. Um, and uh, we we did the we did the wonderful we made the wonderful decision to pick a topic that, as we both researched it, would make us both angry. So um, <laughs> this is gonna be this is gonna be a great time together. Um, Henry, how are you, man? I am doing well. So as spring seems to have hit, at least at the time we recorded this, where we're at. So I very much have enjoyed not being in the frigid, widget temperatures, but being in the seventies. Which is just great. Uh, would you say that being in the seventies is groovy? Oh, would you say that it's it follows I, the bell curve? That's, that's for sure. Nice at the well bottom. Well done. I like that. Well done. It's at the bottom of the bell. Um, <laughs> no, I love it. I uh, I agree. I I've loved the weather this week, except for today. Today it's really gross and rainy out. So like it matters. I'm in a sound treated studio and I have like a blackout curtain over the window. So, so you don't um, see squat. I literally can't see anything, which is great on a day like today, but terrible when it's like a beautiful day outside. And now I can't enjoy that weather, but I, uh, I really am happy for the warmer weather and I hate bundling up. I hate having to put on layer after layer after layer just to take my dog outside. Um, like yeah. And it feels like yeah. a bit of whiplash because I was just out in Wyoming a little under two weeks ago, and the high was minus 24. And so now to be at 70 degrees, you're just like, whoa. Yeah, it was a it was a huge shift, which apparently, if you're in Texas, um, I saw this, everyone, everyone should know by now that a staple of my life is Reddit. And I saw there was a there was a post on I forget what subreddit, but a some Michigan resident basically said, Hey, Texans, uh, Watch out for potholes and not just like small potholes either because the so with with the temperatures freezing the way they did it contracts the road which doesn't have the same underlayer as northern climates do and then Correct. it's going to warm back up and go crack it's going to expand faster and and the and it's because the weather the weather heated up so quickly too like it went from freezing cold to basically you know 60s and uh that 60s and 70s and that like that's going to ruin it that's going to ruin your day like so the the road heats up faster than the ground underneath it and yeah it's going to expand and crack and we're not talking we're talking cracks that I, I was looking at some of the comments from people who've experienced it in other in other states and other places and they were like yeah we're talking like the size of cars like potholes right. huge like cracks potholes. that could cause great damage to people when they hit them yep and and if there was ever a time to pay attention to potholes uh now is the time uh, and uh, pay attention to puddles uh, is what I actually meant to say there. If there was ever time to pay attention to puddles and avoid them at all costs, because you never know what's under a puddle and how deep that hole is. Um, well, and all of this is now. just a great segue to talk about. If we want to talk about something that expanded too fast for its own good and then created a massive crack and fissure that could swallow people whole and ruin lives and go into sub-zero freeze temperatures as far as how we feel about it, now we can talk about too big to fail, accountability versus, you know, popularity. We can talk about Ravi Zacharias. I don't know how I feel about such a lighthearted segue into such a heavy topic. <laughs> I'll be honest. But I, I think that was the that was the that was the most us style we could have done. I that's the most true to us style that we could have done. Because Henry and I are both no strangers to various sorts of traumas. 
and uh, humor is a great and uh, and by great it's a coping I mean not, mechanism. Correct. It's not always a great coping mechanism, but there are moments where I think humor is appropriate. I'll let viewers or listeners decide if they uh, if they feel the same. Yeah, we're doing the humor on the front end because we're about to get angry. Yeah, this 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 one is gross. So if you um, so Henry, take us in, um, introduce us to Ravi Zacharias. I know that there may be some people that actually. Like they may have heard of him or heard a little bit here and there, but they don't really know who he is. Yeah, and this is really going to depend probably on your particular involvement with evangelical Christianity in the last 20 years. So, for example, if you're part of our particular faith persuasion, uh, Seventh-day Adventist, you maybe would have less of a chance of knowing who this was than if you grew up, say, Southern Baptist or such like myself, who I was very aware of who this was about the time I was in high school. I don't know if I was beforehand, but in any case, uh, just so you know, and I can't introduce you to Ravi because he's dead, but he only died just a short bit ago, and that's not what we're talking about, and we're not talking about him physically dying. We're talking about his reputation taking a tank um, and why, and so we want to bring up Ravi Zacharias, and if you grew up, again, in the 90s and the 2000s is when he really would have reached kind of the zenith of his popularity, I, I do believe. And if you were exposed to him in North America, that's probably a bad choice of words considering what we're about to that talk about. That was a really, that was the worst <laughs> choice of words. I'm not even going to call that a pun. That was just a terrible, that was just terrible judgment. We wish it was a pun, but it wasn't. Anyway, so yeah, you would have first come aware of him because of focus on the family and the big radio networks that were out there. Rabbi Zacharias was an internationally known speaker really in the apologetics circuit. And by apologetics, we do not mean he was running around making apologies for things, although, as we're going to see, he should have been doing a lot of that. He was... Better pun. No, anyway, that was better, yes. That, that, that was better. We're trying. Anyway, he should have also tried. I don't know. I didn't know him personally, but here we go. He was international speaker. He was Canadian-American, so I don't know officially where his, quote, if he had dual citizenship or whatever. He was originally yeah. from India, grew up in Delhi, Ended up moving to Canada, and that's kind of where he started getting involved in a lot of this. In the 70s, he really felt a call. He's had a whole big testimony story that he used to share. He felt called to spread the gospel and share news about God and basically defend God is kind of how I would say that, which is slightly sounds good like theodicy, another part of me. And again, I'm saying this looking on in hindsight on his life, knowing what we're about to talk about. And so because of his mission service, he got a speaking slot there in Europe for a Billy Graham crusade, and it was after that that evangelicals started taking notice of him. And that kind of really turbocharged his career as far as, you know, hey, cool, there's this this guy, and I think part of it was cool, he's a minority, he's in the sense that he was not white, white, you know, he's from India. His English is great, they loved kind of a semi-combative style that was really popular in the 80s, probably still mm -hmm. today, unfortunately. And this idea that, you know, the church was really trying to focus on more intellectual and intelligent-sounding answers to faith and other things. And so I think using that platform, Ravi began his own ministry, which was Ravi Zacharias International Ministry. And again, side note, I've always been concerned about ministries that are named after the speakers. That's, yep. <laughs> we'll get into that later. But anyway, he started his own By the way, ministry. we're taking donations at... Uh, Henry Johnson Ministries at, uh, no, at gmail.com. No, uh, no however, 
Yeah, yeah. How, however, if you would like to donate to the Absurd Podcast Network and support hey. a whole lot of shows that are not named after their hosts, because it's plug. not people dependent, it's dependent on the contributions of listeners such as yourselves, then you can go over to the Absurd Network and donate. Absurdnetwork.com cool. or pick up That's some merch. Right. Yeah, yeah, get some cool swag. <laughs> swag that is appropriate. Anyway, speaking of like swag that isn't appropriate... Jumping forward to why we're talking about this. So he became really big in the apologetic circuit. He was on the radio, focused on the family in the 90s, 2000s. That's how I became aware of him personally. Many years ago in my high school years, he was just the one that all your youth pastors and everybody would always point to as far as you're about to go to college, right? You're going to get hit with all these non-believing teachers and professors. And here's this really intelligent, educated guy that can defend the faith and give you answers so that you can hit back at the atheists and the agnostics and the evolutionists and, and that kind of thing. And it's funny that that's how they advertised him because Rabbi Zacharias was no stranger to controversy early on in the 90s, especially when he started taking off after the Billy Graham Crusades. And by that, we're talking about exaggerating his academic credentials. Yep. Okay. So once he began being advertised as this really intelligent, super, you know, great debater, and this kind of thing, people started looking into his biography, and he was starting to write books at the time that were being published in Family Christian Life Books, Lifeway, a lot of these big evangelical publishing houses or stores at the time. Uh, he was becoming a prolific writer in the 90s. And anyway, he was claiming when he was doing these debates that he studied at the University of Cambridge, and then even claimed that he was a professor at the University of Oxford. So it Part of me just thinks he just thought of what the two biggest, most professional-sounding names in the British educational system were and just claimed both of them. Yeah. But, uh, you know, at the time, that's fine. We take everything at face value, except that pretty shortly after he started claiming that, the University of Cambridge denied that he had ever enrolled or even studied there. And Oxford denied that he had ever held nor would hold any sort of position at their university teaching or anything. So right off the bat, he's claiming a certain set of educational credentials, and those are being shot down really quick that he didn't have those. And, you know, there was there was various ways when that came about that he tried to answer that. And, and I'm going to come back to this in a minute because I somewhat feel for him doing this because I have been in similar situations where I get the temptation to, I, I, I guess I just personally resonate with the educational component of that. I can see where it starts, but it also terrifies me because I know I have been tempted in those areas. So I can't imagine if that was the start of what we're going to get into. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. So they, they said no. Now he, he tried to argue it that he had, you know, many honorary degrees from institutions. That's kind of the angle he took. So he never really apologized that he didn't have these things or admit that he didn't have these things. No, and he and he said, I believe that his stance was like in it was it in India in that they that that's a standard practice for them that they would still refer to themselves as doctor and, and with their PhDs even. Yeah, if no, they that were was it. That was his second bout with that. He's had oh, okay. It, throughout, yeah. throughout the course of his ministries, he he he's had several bouts of accusations of academic dishonesty. I think that was that was even more recent. That was something like I'd have to look at our notes here for no, the that show. Twenty seventeen. Twenty seventeen. Yeah. Yes. He he was claiming to be a doctor. You yeah. know, like doctor so and so. And and by the way. Quasi in his defense, and, and and not defense for all we're talking about. And I'm just saying he's not alone in doing this. We see debates even right now 
about people and how you use these titles. I mean, I know politically in the United States, there was debates about Jill Biden, the first lady now, and how she has a doctorate, but she was you know, going by Dr. Jill. And some people were arguing, well, wait a minute, you know, is that, that makes you sound like a medical doctor and it's actually a doctorate in education and et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's not even a good comparison either because she at least has the education that she was claiming a, a doctoral title for, whereas the highest education anyone could confirm for, for Ravi was a master's degree. And again, not at the inst- the educational institutions that he was claiming. So anyway, so he started having lots of, it's kind of, that's a recurring theme. He had lots of educational dust-ups with exaggerated claims of his education or where he worked or or didn't. But yeah. that is not the big thing that really put Ravi in the news lately or even before that. So the educational thing would have been one thing. Most people honestly kind of ignored it. The big thing that started coming up was sexual allegations or allocations of se- a- allocations. <laughs> Oops. Uh, that's a Freudian slip for what we're going to talk about. Out, Al- you yep. know, allegations of sexual impropriety and him doing some really untoward stuff. And before I get into any sort of summary of that, I just want to do a trigger warning out there because we are it's a sad fact of life, and I'm sure we'll circle back around to this, and the Bible even warned about it too. I don't know what it is about religious power and sexual abuse, but they always seem to go hand in hand. They don't have to, but they always seem to yeah. in some way, shape, or form. I think it's the intimacy. <laughs> I think it is the—and when I say intimacy, I don't mean the the intimacy of, of, the, of the sexual activity or the sexual addiction. I mean the intimacy that, that religious people tend to feel— as they open themselves up to a religious leader. It's the amount yeah. of trust that it's not the same as like a CEO or, or whatever. It's the conflating of the spiritual with the Correct. physical. Correct. And right. emotional. It's all, it's that yeah. all, all of that conflation together. Yeah. So anyway, we, we just a trigger warning. We are unfortunately, statistically speaking, there's probably somebody listening to this recording that is going to have experienced some form of abuse at the hands of a church leader or something else. And so we recognize we're about to talk about some things that reflect that sphere. And so this is just a trigger warning. If you need to pause and just be like, maybe I need to come back to this episode later, please feel free to do that. If you're in a place where you're like, well, I can deal with it, but it's still raw. uh, Just know we're discussing this for a reason. We're not going to condone any of this. And so please hold on and, and let us get through this. But just know that we we want to be there for you, and we don't want to secondhand victimize you again by talking about these things. So we're going to talk about some. We're not going to get into tor- you know horrible details, but uh, we're going to mention some of these things. So that warning aside, the the first big story. Well, it's not even the first big story, but one of the more recent ones that brought this back to the fore again was I think back in 2017 again when. A, a Canadian lady, which I'm forgetting her name at the moment, they sent a demand letter to Ravi Zacharias and his ministry demanding like a mil, couple million dollars or whatever in exchange for them not filing a lawsuit accusing him of exchanging like sexual texts and nude photos and et cetera between him and her, basically. So he was accused of improper sexual sexting or nude pictures 
that kind of thing. And then they filed a lawsuit in return, and that went back and forth. And again, we're not into the legal minutia of that, but it was basically settled with a non-disclosure agreement and some untold sum of money, as usually happens back in 2017. Okay, and then in 2019, so this is only like two and a half, three years ago, right? A retired police officer, again in Canada, recounted and came forward and said that Ravi Zacharias pressured her to have an abortion after she became pregnant as a teenager by his brother. And this was years and years ago, but this was during, I'm pretty sure this was during, that was during his focus on the family days when that happened. Right. Um, Which would have been huge because another thing Ravi did to really get himself popular in the early 2000s, I remember with focus on the family was he was one of the key sponsors of kind of like a political pledge where people pledged against abortion in favor of creationism, young earth theory, and about Christianity having a big say in society. There was some sort of like political pledge that a lot of people were signing at the time, and he was one of the endorsers of that, again, lending his credentials as the intelligent debater, apologists, you know, for that. So it was kind of ironic that at a time where they're talking about making a tough stance on abortion, it comes out that he's advocating someone take one to yep. cover up some sort of relationship going that on story, that involved like, his family. If you if you if you look that story up, uh, Shirley Stewart was the was the officer name that that recounted this, and um, uh, she she goes into quite a bit of detail of of Ravi's reaction to it and what he and like how he and how he pressured her to uh, to have the abortion and like it is pretty nasty. Um, and 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 I mean nasty as in just like. Not obviously disgusting, but more so uh, enraging to see how he how he acted and what he said to her, um, and what was clearly a priority to him, which was how it would damage the family name and how it would damage his reputation um, if she were to f- carry forward or you know carry that baby forward. So just really, right. really disgusting. Right. And so now here comes the final trove of disgusting, and then we're going to dive into this as if we haven't already with all of this. Obviously, Ravi Zacharias was diagnosed with cancer, and he died in May of last year. He died at age 74. And once he died, a whole bunch of accusations began to surface. Not that this was the first time these were made, I want to be clear, but they resurfaced now that he was kind of out of the picture and and the kind of post-praise of his life and ministry kind of died down because there is a certain element of kind of hero worship that takes place in churches. It happens in any culture, but, you know, somebody dies and immediately everybody comes to the forefront talking about how great this ministry was and how amazing this individual was for our spiritual journeys. And I think these kind of go hand in hand. People who have been victimized when they see effusive praise for an abuser, Mm -hmm. I, I think that rightly so triggers them to an extent that I think the accusations come at the same time. And I think that's something, we're probably talking about this again, something we need to kind of weed through. And I get it can be hard for us at first glance to get because it always seems to go hand in hand. You have some moment where someone's like at the zenith of praise and all of a sudden here comes all these accusations. And in our society today, we immediately go, they're just doing that to get attention or they're just doing that to you know ride the coattails of everyone paying attention to this person. Uh, again, we're... So much we could say about no, what do they get out of having their name smeared over society and whatever. But anyway, so it was at that time, post-death, with all the praise, that I think a lot of these things resurfaced because people mm-hmm. are like, wait a minute, you need to be aware of some things. Well, and it's it's also worth noting that when the person is dead, it it 
It's not that it becomes easier. I think it just becomes slightly more manageable in some respect because the the uh, for for victims to speak out uh, and to yeah. feel more comfortable speaking out because the direct threat to them is gone. Now there's the threat of the public pressure of you know coming out against a um against a public figure that's beloved, but the actual threat from the person themselves is gone, and that yeah. is that is what prompts a lot of people to be able, you know, with enough motivation or hope that they'll be heard and listened to and that person isn't around to directly discredit them or attempt to discredit them anymore. Yeah. And so now we're just going to give you the kit and caboodle right up front. So once he died, because of a lot of accusations that have been bubbling underneath the surface, not just in public after his death, his ministry, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, had hired a team of independent lawyers to pursue a lot a big investigation into several of the accusations that had been bubbling under the surface and had just been brought to light and that investigation conducted by their own ministry concluded there was credible evidence that he had engaged in sexual misconduct and misconduct's really I mean that's a legal term but it's it's far beyond just sexual misconduct they they found that credible evidence that he had at least solicited and received sexually explicit photos from more than 200 women in their early 20s from throughout the course of his ministry. So not just like recently, but some of them even right before his death, apparently, in this investigation. They also realized that he was using tens of thousands of dollars of ministry funds so that, you know, committing bank fraud in many different ways from having donations to a nonprofit organization and then funding them through what he called humanitarian effort, which is just gross, Yep. right, to pay for massage therapists. Now, not that we have anything against any massage therapist that would be listening, but this would be more along the lines of what we heard several rich people even in North America do lately, like football owners and things, where they're not just getting a massage, <laughs> They are expecting, as they call the massage with the happy ending or yep. some other horrible thing where it's not happy for anybody but them, supposedly. Right. And so he was housing, schooling, and putting like monthly support out for extended periods of time on masseuses or whatever he would hire. Okay. But he was hiring them and then using that as an extortion situation to basically get sexual favors or sex from these ladies. Yep. Right. To the point that one lady, I believe that and the article that was talking about this even came out and said that once she got financial support, he was requiring, that was a requirement. He told her he required sex from her as a re return investment on the job, so to speak. And that he did some, this is where I'm going to start getting angry, but now we can segue into talking about it. He would, he would apparently even thank God in prayer before with, they yeah, would with the person yeah, yeah with the individual before he would basically power rape her right and and say thank you to god for the opportunity they now had to have sex and and viewed her and his other victims as his reward for living a life of service to god and then he would warn the ladies when he was done with his his sexual act to not speak against him or they would be responsible so he's basically you know, extorting them, threatening them, saying, if you come out about this, you will ruin millions of souls that I have brought to the kingdom of God because they will lose faith in the message because 
you know, they listened to me and that's how they came in and you just destroyed my reputation. So you're destroying God's reputation. So thank you. Have a nice life. Yep. Yeah. No, I, this, this whole thing is, is gross to me. I, I think the, the, oh, actually before I, before I say anything else to this, let me, let me say first, um, for those who don't know the term power rape, we're not talking like like 80s workout video. We're talking like <laughs> um we're talking authority, like someone unequal power in in unequal uh power balance or in uh, power imbalance. So he has more authority, more power uh than the person that he is uh sexually assaulting here and and honestly raping. And so right. this the, is the difference yeah. like it's 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 one thing somebody ra- I mean not that any of them are It's an exploitative relationship. Other. Right. In other words, what people would normally associate in their mind is a standard rape, like someone's walking home and they get grabbed out of the bushes and raped. Is and They're both bad, but I'm just saying a power rape would be something like, it's one thing to be raped by someone you don't know, or even someone you know, but it, they just overpowered you. It's another thing when a whole lot of other factors play into forcing submission, such as being raped in the bush is one thing, being raped knowing if you report it, you lose your job, your kids could go hungry, Right, you know, you could have mobs attacking your home over something, accusing you. What? That's a whole lot more pressure presented towards you than just being grabbed off the street. That's kind of what we mean yeah, by correct. power rape. So, so I knew about, I knew a bit about Ravi uh, years ago. Shortly, um, probably 2015 is when I actually discovered who he was, and it was just sheer by like seeing YouTube videos. Um, a lot of his, you know, a lot of his talks have, have gone, uh, the, the Christian version of viral, um, and in some respects viral in general. And, um, who was this guy showing up at debates or colleges and giving some of these answers? And it was amazing how consistently his answers were so profound. Now, granted, and, and I, and I I do want to say this pretty, pretty dead on here. If you are someone who goes to debates regularly, if you're someone who goes to, uh, panel discussions or takes Q and A's about any given topic. You know, in advance what questions you're going to get. If I walk into a high school right now, like a like a private, you know, uh, a private academy, and I say open Q and A, I'm a pastor. I know exactly what questions I'm going to get from those teenagers. I, I'm like, going to say, if you're 100%. in this field long enough, you. I mean, these yeah. are basic human questions everybody has. So it's not. So it, it, it exactly. So he. I'm not. I'm not going to say it was like particularly impressive from that standpoint, but from just an, uh, but from an onlooker standpoint, like yeah, it's consistent. What seems like great answers um, to some of these difficult questions, and all the comments flooded with you know we're talking hundreds of thousands of views. Comments flooded with with praise and 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 the impact that that these answers have had, or further questions even. Um, and then it was it was I was looking into him when I discovered the story about. Um, about the the non disclosure agreement and the uh, the money being transferred right um, in 2017, and so at that point I was just like, okay, cool. Um, I'm not really gonna do. I'm not gonna really engage with his content anymore. That was my that was my rule. And part of part of what the issue was there was because it was an NDA. Um, it was hard for me to be able to verify any of what he was saying and what she like. There's no there's nothing that that the um, that the victim could say. And so I just didn't engage with his content anymore. And I didn't say anything on any of my platforms at the time I was running Absurdity. Um, I didn't really make it a point, I don't think, to talk about it because I had never really heard anyone actually talk about Ravi in person. 
Like, mm. I thought he just had some internet fame here and there, but like, I, I had not a single time prior to 2017 had I, uh, dis- ha- had I ever encountered Ravi Zacharias in a, in a casual conversation with someone or, you know, in reference anything. It had never been mentioned. And if it had, it was, you know, if he had, it would, it was me that referenced it to someone to say like, hey, watch this video. I think it's really cool. Right. That was, that was essential. Or, hey, what do you think? Um, but I, so I didn't say anything or I didn't think much of it. Um, but it was, it was after that I had looked back on his content. It showed up on recommended and cause YouTube's algorithm is really good at what it does. And I was watching his videos, some of his videos again. And that's when I started to see how, to be honest, how much of a load of crap most of his answers were. They were all like super thinly veiled indirect answers that always included some borderline, for lack of a better word, absurd encounters with people that just I don't I don't believe happened for a second. Nor do I believe they, he, they were he, manufactured illustrations. Yeah, I think they words, were manufactured yeah. in illustrations of people coming up to him after you know after shows talking with him and and how he led those conversations and I like I just don't buy it. Um, it it sounded it just always sounded so rehearsed and so it, fantastical the way that these stories would play out and where he was always the profound person in in, in an interaction with someone like. Every single one of his stories that I can remember and always included him as the hero, as the smart, wise guy in a conversation with someone. Like someone asked him about LGBTQ plus uh, individuals and, and the church. And he opens with a story about an LGBTQ plus girl who talked with him after a show. And he, you know, he gave this huge, you know, drop of wisdom to her and and, you know, just completely gave her some some transforming words. And that's that's how every story is. It's him being the scholar, amazing guy. Um, He's the hero in the story, basically. Every time. Every single time. In contrast to people like, and this is just throwing out a nerd moment to fanboy, because I'll back up on this. I was never a huge fan of Ravi. I knew who he was. But I'm definitely a fan of this person I'm about to say, so I'm giving something away. But there's an Anglican thought leader, right, um, N.T. Wright, and he is a highly intelligent individual as well, I would say. And he actually yeah. does have all the degrees he claims to have. But anyway, uh, you know, dealing with that. And I, I, as soon as you were saying that, it reminded me of he was doing a Q&A at a university for a lecture series. And somebody asked him about LGBTQ+. And I remember his answer did not involve a story. He just launched right into an answer, and he said it as someone who knew what he was saying he was confident in and he thought was well thought out and was intelligent and it could stand on its own merits. And and the reason why that jumped out to me is, like you said, sometimes I think people overcompensate when they're not sure. And like you said, when I have to be the hero of every story and I always have to have an illustration to prove my point when, well, you know, some people that are really intelligent, like I'd say, I I remember N.T. Wright giving this answer. He didn't have to be the hero. He didn't say he was smart. He didn't have an illustration. He just gave an answer, and you just listening to it, it stood on its own merits. You were like, oh, whether I agree with that or not, that's really well thought out, and whoa, that's deep. Yeah, and I, I right. think I, I think the other side of it, too, is like he couldn't even include one of those safe sin stories where, where like, you know how pastors, like, they can be open, but they can't really be open from the pulpit or else someone's going <laughs> to— you know, they, they're destroy them. Yeah, correct. Or their families put in jeopardy or whatever, because they can't be real. They can't fully be trans. They can't be fully transparent about 
the impact of sin in their life one way or the other. Like, it's it just, they can't. Um, there are too many people with unrealistic standards, and especially if you're in a congregational church, which basically means that the congregation is who hires and pays their pastor, uh, you you know, you lose your livelihood if you if you tick off the wrong people. I say enough people so, don't like you, they just vote and you're gone. So exactly. So so there's something that pastors do where we 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 give a a safe answer, a safe story that reminds people that we're human, not perfect, but we can't really go all the way deep. But but like it's a you know it's a foible, it's a it's a little fumble that we had. It's a little it's a little little uh, little problem here, but not not anything morally jeopardizing. Just like oh, pastor, you should have known better. One of those stories. Yeah, he couldn't yeah you, don't, you don't stand up and be like, I walked into the slut bar and was thinking about paying for something and then realized I'm a minister, I shouldn't do this, and walked down. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, God granted, you shouldn't you. be doing that if you're a pastor, right? but like, or at all. But my point being, like, no one can be honest about that fact. And there, there is something that is related to this even more so. But the fact that Ravi couldn't even, I don't, I maybe he did. And maybe there's there's many videos out there. But from the videos that I had seen, um, and watch. I never really saw him even place himself in even that kind of position. He was always the hero, always the wise sage, uh, coming in and just dropping these amazing wisdom, you know, pieces of wisdom to people. And it, it just it 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 seems so disingenuous. And maybe it's confirmation bias now that I know all the accusations too. But there's something to be said about like the fact that seeing those thinly veiled answers with not a lot of substance to them. Um, just a lot of emotion and kind of lo- a lot of like fancy words that he doesn't even use correctly half the time. Um, there's something about that that when now you know about the accusations, it just makes sense. And what, like I said, it's probably confirmation bias to some degree, but it just makes sense to me. Um, it, it that because the bottom line is his entire ministry was just a was just a veiled attempt for him to get sexual gratification at every possible opportunity and personal gratification at every opportunity. That's what it seems like at this point. Now, I'm going to say as far as we can tell not having yeah. been there. Now, there was I I think it I think it is fair to say that there was there was definitely a time where he he I I can say that I don't know when that time was. I don't know for how long it lasted. Maybe it was a week, maybe it was several years, maybe it was the entire beginning of his of his um of his ministry. I don't know. Uh but I think there was a time where he wasn't doing any of this and the, his call to ministry was very, very, you know, genuine and what he, his work was very genuine when it turned into whatever it became. I, you know, I, none of us can say, and none of us can know for sure, but I do believe that, that, that probably started from a good place. And I think it's important for us to at least acknowledge that. Yes, he did make a positive impact on a lot of people through his words, through his talks, through his events, and just because he's a monster in this, you know, in this area does not devalue the impact or the closeness that you now have with God as a result of, you know, being impacted by those talks. Um, I like I think that's really important because I think I think we lack nuance in saying that. And people begin to feel like if we if we dismiss or if we criticize Ravi and we discredit him, then we're also discrediting their experience. And I can I can pretty much guarantee you that, you know, your experience was real, even if the person, you know, doing it was a monster. But if, if, if what they said was true, or at least brought you closer to the true God, it is what it is. There's no going back and undoing that. Um, and you can acknowledge that it was a positive part and a positive impact on your life. 
without idolizing and you know celebrating the character of the person who who gave that talk or gave those talks. Yeah, I mean this is the big this is the big thing in our society today. We don't know how to have complicated discussions. We just we just we paint with very broad brushes. Nobody likes to use little micro ones anymore. And and I think this is one thing, especially as Christians, we have to be called to really invest the work to sort through some of these things, which is why you and I are trying to have this discussion as well, that you guys are all along for the journey. And, and that's this. You have to be able to realize there is a difference between the call and the called, mm-hmm. between the message and the messenger. And too many times we just conflate them as all one and the same, and we have a really hard time disassociating that. In fact, one of the one of the big things that's really helped me start processing this uh, was a was a message that someone I knew uh, give a shout out to her. No one's going to know who this is, but her name's Kessia Bennett, and she had gave a message. This is probably five or six years ago. It had nothing to do with Ravi. It wasn't anything recent, and she had been making some comments about this message she gave on the life of Samson. And this has always stuck with me. One of the main points she made is she said, there is no denying that Samson had a call of God on his life, mm-hmm. that there was something God wanted to do through Samson for Israel. And she's talking about a story of a guy named Samson in the book of Judges, for those of you who don't know what I'm referring to. And the point she made was, while it was no doubt that he had a calling on his life, a call does not immediately produce the character necessary to fulfill that calling. Correct. Correct that that is up to the choices of the one that has been called. And, and that's that, a, that so is a very Sam- biblically consistent story. Yes. So in other words, Samson got the call, but he, his life ends up being a whole series of choices he makes that ignores that call and doesn't do anything to fit himself for that work. And so that principle has always stuck out to me. So when we get ready to talk about a Ravi Zacharias or somebody else, the thought always hits me. I'm, I have no right as a Christian to deny that he had a calling. If he says he did, right, and, and, and all of that, then I have to assume the best about people the Bible says. I'm, I'm going to go with, who am I to say he didn't? So fine. Ravi Zacharias had a call. There's many people that get defensive right now and go, yes, but he had a call of God. He was doing things. And well, pr- well praise be. But God's calling on his life is not a substitute for him having to have made choices throughout his life to either fit him to fulfill that calling or unfit him. For that calling. Correct. And it's become clear now at the end of his life that there are a lot of choices, and we don't know where those began. And I think this is something else that's kind of scary, but we have to all admit, I don't think it was one day he just woke up and was like, I want nude pictures from people. You know, I don't think it's one day he woke up and was like, I'm going to make this complicated financial scheme to funnel money into apartments and stuff overseas to hire masseuses and have them there and extort them for sex. I, I don't think I think all of us who have dealt with our own various evils in our life, no, you don't just wake up planning those kinds no. of things. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me if if when it first started, it was someone coming to him and propositioning him. And yeah, I mean, who knows what? Yeah. We just don't know. That's beyond the scope of all of that subjecture, you know, conjecture to this point <laughs> for us. Subjective and conjecture. Subjecture. I'm here for it. Subje- I know. I'm, I'm mixing my words today. But the point is, and this kind of goes back around to that point I was hinting at with his early educational struggles. And this is why I was saying, personally, I really relate to that. Um, I, for those who really know me, and I don't always share a lot of that, I did not take a traditional 
educational route in life. And part of that was because I was a man in the sense that most of us say young men tend to mature slower or have a lot more issues in the middle part of their life. I, I had a lot of issues with education, not that I couldn't do it, but I was lazy. Mm. And I was also too much of a, I liked what I liked and really didn't like what I didn't like. And it was really hard for a long period of my life to force myself to do what I didn't like doing. Yep. And so school was one of those things that there were certain subjects I loved and others just bored me to death. And so I wouldn't apply myself. So there, I had a, I had a love hate relationship with education. And so there was a time where, you know, when I was first going through the normal ages of college and whatever, I dropped out. Mm. And there's, there's a whole number of factors why that happened. Well, when I got later in life and kind of grew up a bit and was trying to pursue other careers and things like that or like get into ministry, there was that initial problem where I didn't have the education that was required, right? And when you get older, obviously, it's much more harder to want to have to step out of the work environment to do that or to go fix that or to admit that you had an issue or whatever. And there were many times, and this is why I said I can really relate to this, there were many times I thought, well, once you have the job or whatever, once you reach a certain age, and it, and it is true, it kind of seems once you get to a certain age, people stop asking about your education as much. Yeah. Right. You know, people ask about my education like one out of 100 times at, in my 30s now, whereas when I was in my early 20s, the first question out was, hey, where'd you go to school? What'd you graduate from? You know, it. it I think there's seasons of life. But in that stage where I didn't have the qualifications, my great temptation was, well, what does it hurt just to quickly throw on a resume that I have this? Because most of them are just going to assume, duh. And, you know, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't have to worry about them checking in that or just help you keep going. I've got the ability to do it. So, you know, whatever. And I remember always wrestling with that. And this is not some personal moralistic story to be like, look, Henry made the right choice and isn't he a great guy? No, I, I mean, I probably only did not do that because I had a healthy sense of paranoia and pessimism. And so I was like, yeah, well, most people get away with it, but the moment I do it, someone's going to find it and I'm going to be screwed, right? You know, yeah. that was kind of, so I'm not saying I didn't do it because I was like, this is the wrong thing to do. I won't. It was more like, I got to protect myself. But for whatever reason, right, I, I guess I'm just saying I can really relate to that, this need to to try and validate your worth, to try and validate your ability to do something. And again, I was not in Ravi's head, so I have no clue. But the thing that really resonates with me personally is the fact that early on in his career were these questions about education. And I guess I'm just saying from my personal journey in life, that part of me wonders if that was his own attempts at validating himself his own attempts at trying to find worth. I don't know if that's because he came from India and in the British Empire that was you were like secondhand citizen. You know, I I don't know all of his upbringing. I don't know what insecurities and and things he had. None of us do, right? I mean, we we aren't him, and obviously we're talking about famous people as if we knew them personally, and we don't. We can only know what media and everybody else tells us. But yeah. my thing is, I almost wonder if some of these horrible sins that came later, you know began with something as simple as, I'm going to validate myself in this way that isn't acceptable, but I convince myself it ain't going to hurt anybody, mm -hmm. so I'm good. And the problem is, is if you go down that road, we all know you can easily end up places you never thought you would be, that you never wanted to be, just because of seemingly innocent yep. decisions along the way. And I have no doubt that probably something like that could have been the jump start 
to eventually getting to the point where, hey, I could validate myself sexually, or I could validate my worth through this lady or through this person or, or whoever, and you know, there's that slippery slope of death yeah. that we now see just came snowballing out of his life. And and let me let, let's be clear too: the slippery slope is not the the slippery slope. I think is a fallacy when when applied as far as like a social move. Like, oh, if you approve of this, then you know next next thing you know we're gonna have this. I think that's not the appropriate application for slippery slope. And I think that what whatever that book was that 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 uh, publicized that phrase. Uh, um, I'm not a fan of burning books, but throw it away. Um, the <laughs> But I think in this case, it, what, we're, what we're talking about is what, what is it? C.S. Lewis's um, uh, Screw Tape Letters that talks about this. One oh, of the letters. Excellent book. Excellent. Um, book. I so I got the chance to watch that as a one man performance from Max McLean in Orlando, Florida, and I was I had no idea how I was going to find this entertaining because it's literally just you know a guy reading letters. Um, but it's amazing. It was so well done, and uh, but there's there's a he talks about getting. It's this. It's this demon writing uh, to was it was it his was it his supervisor essentially? It wasn't Satan himself. It was like it was like another. It was another demon. I'm pretty sure that he was writing to, but basically updating him on how he's tempting and trying to get get this human to fall away from God. And at one point they describe what that experience should look like, and he goes, "We're just trying to get him to make a little decision after a little decision that gets him just a little bit further away." Until one day he's going to wake up and realize that he is, he's all, all of a sudden, you know, there's a whole chasm between where he was and where he is now. And it's kind of that idea of it's a whole bunch of little decisions that you and I make, that we make intentionally, that lead us to these places. It's all the little rationalizations. It's all of those that get us there. It's not a slippery slope in that if you make one decision, suddenly you'll slide into the rest. Yeah, where you don't you don't trip and all of a sudden just tumble all the yep. way down the stairs. This is it's a process of you have to consciously take every step down. It's every every rationalization you can think of for breaking a boundary or stretching a boundary that you have put in place or that you should have in place. Uh that's the slippery slope. And and so yes, I and and the idea is that when you look back you'll go, "Oh, wow, I'm really far from where I thought I I was." And I uh, how did I get here? And that's where you can start to look at that trail of decisions. So um yeah, I can understand that. I don't want to go too far into humanizing him because I think, like, yeah. But I, I, there's I been plenty of people to do that, and that's why we need to kind of transition here into talking about the consequences. So, for example, if people don't realize the Ravi Zacharias International Ministry is closed, they have disbanded the entire organization. Since then, his denomination, his particular denomination, has revoked his credentials, obviously posthumously, but he has had his ordination revoked. There's been a lot of fallout from what has happened here. And while, yes, there's been plenty of people trying to humanize him, and we've tried to be grace-oriented and understanding what was going on or you know whatever, I think there comes a point, and that's why both you and I wanted to talk about it, Grace isn't just being like, oh, we're so sorry. We know that's rough. You know, grace also prevents enabling, right? Grace is also, this is the thing about Jesus, right? The verse that says, in him, grace and truth met, right? He is grace and truth. You can't really have grace without truth. And a lot of in the West, especially in Christianity, what we call grace is really us just trying to love ourselves through other people and not actually looking out for them or taking care of them. 
And sometimes, like you said, I think a lot of the defense we've seen of, of Ravi lately is people that are trying to defend their experience with him and their conversion story and how God has worked through that at the expense of actually doing or saying or, or taking account of things that need to be done for the accountability of Ravi, his family, his victims, whatever, not like that. So let's talk about Let's talk about accountability. Let's talk about these consequences. Yeah. Like, how do we make, what do we do about all of this that's come yeah. out and we now know, man, this guy was a sexual predator. So this is this is the one thing, I, you know, I'm sad that anyone dies. I, I, I would never wish death on someone, but there is a piece of this that I, I am glad in all of this that he's no longer around to victim, he's no longer in a position to victimize more people. That's what I'm thankful for. I, you know, uh, I wish it was a different situation. I actually feel the same way about Rush Limbaugh. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm glad they're not in a position to do more harm. I wish they were around, at, if A, because life, but B, because I, I want them to face consequences. And I trust and, and have faith in a God that will still dole out consequences accordingly. But, but you know, there, there's, there's that side of it. But I would say this, because I think there's the temptation to say we need to make an example out of him. Uh, and out of this for others watching, which is true. There are people watching this. But I think there, there's a common defense of this, of, or a common argument against this. Say, like, we shouldn't make an example out of him. He's dead. We shouldn't make an example out of him. Like, what's the point if, if he's not even around? And my thought is he's already an example. And if you don't hold someone accountable, even in death, then all you've done is give future leaders, future presenters, future pastors the... Basically, you've given them the affirmation that as long as they're a good enough speaker with an intellectually sounding, you know, an intellectual sounding accent, as long as they can tell good stories and be captivating, they can get away with whatever they want. And if we do not understand and accept the narrative for what it is, and, and we, we don't decry those kinds of actions then it will not surprise me if in even 5, 10, 15 years' time, we start to see leaders, uh, we, we start to see a, an entire generation of leaders who believe, who believe they can get away with whatever they want and who are directly well, The thing is, I don't this. think we even, we don't even have to wait 5 or 10 years. I mean, no, it's, it's already it now. correct. Ra Ravi, yeah. Ravi is one of a whole host of megachurch pastors and other things that just in the last three years have, have come out as having... yeah. You know, had accusations that churches swept under the rug or said there's no way, they're too big to fail, kind of thing. And then it all comes, the house of cards comes crashing yep. down. And we realize how many lives have been obliterated and ruined and what kind of sick, twisted logic has been used to facilitate that. Yeah. And I think th there there are two more elements I want to touch on here. Number number one being the victims, too. Um there is the need the victims are still alive. Yeah, the victims are still alive. And they, they deserve justice. And we've talked about this before on this show, the importance of being able to reclaim agency, reclaim power in your life when it has been taken from you. And Ravi took it from, these, from a lot of these women. And this is an important step in acknowledging their experiences. And while, yes, there's nothing Ravi can do, there is something that his ministry can do. There, there are things that we can do as well. And I believe... Um, this is this is actually why you see a lot of a lot of parents when they when they have a when they have a child that dies of cancer or like or some other disease or maybe you know someone in their family got hit by a 
a drunk driver, they suddenly become advocates, you know, against or for the cause of whatever, you know, whatever caused their, 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 their family member's death. So they become, you know, they show up to cancer walks to, to raise money again, you know, to fund cancer research or, you know, they join mad, they join mad. Yeah. Driving. Yeah. Whatever. whatever. Like they, they'll, they'll start those kinds of things. And that's, that's the kind of thing that a lot of victims will do. They find purpose and meaning from the, you know, out of the experience, not directly, you know, caused by, but rather they look into that and they say, can I do something good from the experience that I've had? And the answer is yes. So they become advocates for that. And I think that a lot of these women came forward and shared something because they don't want to see other people victimized too. They want to see mm-hmm. it brought to an end. And to do justice for them means to hold leaders that we have now accountable um, and future leaders accountable. And I, so there's that element. The victims are alive still and still being impacted by this. The last thing I would say is this. People keep saying like, well, was he, you know, were any of these accusations proven in a court of law? You know, we, you know, have, have, they, have they been proven in a court of law? But like we have independently verified claims and there's a consistent number of them and the court of law defense doesn't work from the church's point of view. I'm going to say the church itself, we have clear scriptural evidence that says you guys should judge yourselves, not always go to the Cor- court. Yeah, literally, the Bible writers seem to prefer. We're, I mean, we're that literally we going to be. Ju- yep. <laughs> yeah, they're like, literally, you will judge angels. Why can't you judge each other? And not in the judgy sense, because I know that's a whole loaded term, but I, he's just like, deal with it yourselves. We have a different framework that we operate from. And that's another concerning thing to me. When we say about the court of law or the court of public opinion or whatever, they're operating on a different framework. And I'm not saying that's bad, but the church, there, there's different motives. There should be different end goals that we have, Yep. right? I, I mean, law is only like what's right, what's wrong, and how is some sort of equitable agreement made to deal with it? The, the church shouldn't just be about, okay, what's the bare minimum we need to do to establish a bare minimum set of facts and just handle something? The church should, we're about an alternate not an alternate reality. That sounds like we're crazy. But I mean, we're we're moving towards a different way of doing life. That should be the point where there's a different standard for what does it mean to be whole? What does it mean for justice? What does it mean for the way the universe should operate and is going to be operating again on this planet one day? And just saying, well, you know, he's dead or, okay, they just gave some money to the victims, which I don't even think they did that. That would have been interesting had they liquidated the foundation and sent all the money to victims or something. I don't know. I don't know that they did that or they didn't. But my point is, that's one set of standards. But what is the church going to do about, like you said, these victims that are still alive and the fact that you cannot tell me, even though it's been only six to eight months of negative press, that six to eight months of the negative press at the end of his ministry has not ended up being greater than the course of the 30 years or whatever of public ministry he's done in damaging the church, damaging the gospel, and turning entire generations of people off from the message mm-hmm. he proclaimed to be sharing. And can I just be... And if we don't deal something about that, it's a cancer that will eat us alive. And can I just be honest about the fact that, like, it just, it angers me, too, on a personal level, because all, uh, uh, like, this also just makes the job of pastors harder. Like, it's frustrating when something like this happens, because it just makes our lives harder as we fight for legitimacy and fight to show that we are, you know, um, we have some form of integrity. We have some form of character. We are not that. Um, and every time a pastor does something like this or a ministry leader does something like this, it makes it that much harder for, for us to do. Um, 
But look, like if if someone does want to go for legal consequences, then go go for a court of law, and the victims could certainly go after the ministry or go after his estate. They could, um, but the church doesn't need that court to seek justice. And I think like when God comes back, no one's going to be saying, "Yeah, but God, have you gone through the U.S. court system?" Because if you haven't, yeah. sorry. <laughs> Uh, like no one's doing that. So I, the court of law defense is not how the church operates, and it can when you're determining legal, you know, polit- legal as far as a government position and and societal position, uh, legal consequences for something. But that's it. That's as far as that goes. Um, and so the church does have a different model for dealing with things, and this certainly meets those, you know, the, that litmus test. So I think the, there is, I, I know I've spent this entire time saying like why this is important for us to talk about and why it's important for us to, 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 um, to address this and, and to say, no, this is not okay. Um, but I think this is a huge opportunity for the church to, one more, another opportunity for the church to uh, distance itself from that kind of thing and to say, yeah, that's not who we're going to be. These are the steps we're going to take to protect people. These are the steps that we're going to take to... Um, also to protect our leaders. And what I mean by protect our leaders, let me be clear. And this is ready for this, Henry. We've just come full circle. I am, I am a yep. this is this is so good. Um, and I know I'm just I'm just uh building myself up, puffing myself up. But um uh I think this is an opportunity for churches to protect leaders in the sense that earlier I talked about pastors always telling safe stories. The bottom line is for many pastors. They do feel it is un like for many pastors, there are unrealistic expectations put on them from members or put on them from mentors or put on them from their organization that they belong to, where uh, they don't feel like they can be honest about the struggles they have dealt with or they are dealing with. If someone relapses into an old addiction, they can't preach on that until the addiction's been dealt with. And then it was something they were dealing with years ago. Like, there is no space. And I'm not saying that a pastor should be able to preach that, right? I'm not saying that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is there's no space to be given. uh, There's no space given often for help. Or if there is, the pastor may not even be aware of it. And let me me be 100% clear in saying it is always the pastor's responsibility or the leader's responsibility or, you know, whoever the, 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 the offender is, like, to take responsibility for their actions to take responsibility for their problems, to seek help, and to get help. But those channels aren't always readily available. Or um, And the amount of fear that comes when, when your health insurance, when, you're, you know, when your income and livelihood is on the line. It's one thing if you just work a desk job and have, in, and have an addiction and have to deal with it. Now, granted, if you have to go to rehab, that's, that's obvi- obviously that can impact your job too. But I think it's it's entirely different when the the moral side of your life is connected to the qualifications for your job in such a such an intertwined and intimate manner, um, because it does make it harder to deal with those problems when they exist. And I think we need better better ways for pastors and for ministry leaders to find accountability in a way that allows them to be honest about the struggles they they are facing without obviously you know writing those off or writing you know without without blanket accepting or ta- or validating or affirming any of those addictions. Or minimizing. Yeah. Um, and I think there needs to be something that's given to that. Um, I don't know what that looks like. Is it a, you know, is it a three-month administrative leave so that they can go deal with their problem? 
Is it a, you know, I don't, I don't know what the, I don't know what that process necessarily has to look like, but I know that we need to do a better job in providing space for ministry leaders to also be human so that when they start, when those small decisions start, um, they can more quickly identify them or someone else can identify them and it's safe to get them help without, without them losing everything in the process. These are proactive things we need to start doing now or else the next Ravi Zacharias is going to be just around the corner and we're going to be in the same boat where we keep fighting over the consequences and we don't do anything where if we'd spent half that amount of effort preventing us from getting to that point, the church would be in a better place. Correct. And I don't, like you, I don't know that I have all the answers for how that needs to look yet, but I do know that it needs to be, something needs to be done with it. We yeah. can't just let this topic die off in two months and then that's yep. it. Yep. Until the next, and candle. I would say too, in in in, I agree completely with what you're saying here. I think that being proactive is incredibly important here. Um, I just want to also, uh, I just also want to balance that with, and maybe I don't know if you agree with this or not. We're going to find out. But uh, down with the Billy Graham rule, okay? <laughs> um, no solution to this should involve putting a ceiling over someone's ability to move forward in their organization, their church, whatever, uh, because of their gender. If you don't know what the Billy Graham rule is, the Billy Graham rule, now called the Mike Pence, well, self-titled the Mike Pence rule by, by you know, by the namesake, <laughs> um, is the rule that says that, uh, uh, you know, a male leader won't be alone with a member of, you know, with, with, a, with a female that isn't his wife. That's the Billy Graham rule. Won't be alone in a car, won't be alone in an office. I, I followed that early in my yep. ministry and didn't realize what that was implying. Yeah, so the 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 difficulty with that, I get it. I get the where that's coming from and why people have it. However, um, the, the reality is it creates a completely unequal, unfair environment that disadvantages women. Um, and in the case that women employ this on their end, men. But mostly, 99.9% .9 of the time, I'd say women. Uh, because now you have someone who can't approach you one-on-one -on -one to talk about an issue, but a man can. They can't ap approach you to talk about an issue or talk about anything sensitive of a sensitive or personal nature or of a professional nature. They can't do anything without having a third party present because of, because of your rule. Whereas a man can have free access as much as he wants without any problem. And that's the kind of thing that, that it, it puts a glass ceiling on women because they can't move forward. And we do it to, quote, protect. But here's the problem. The other thing is that's not dealing with the actual issue. That's just dealing with a, like, that's not dealing with the heart issue that leads someone to make, start making those kinds of, of decisions. The problem, the problem with making decisions that lead you down that slippery slope we talked about earlier isn't the decisions themselves. It's the issues in your heart that allow, uh, for this, that allow space for those decisions to even come up. It's the, like, you have a problem and the decision is just the outward expression of the problem that you have. And all the Billy Graham rule does is put a boundary in place that doesn't ever actually deal with the problem. It just prevents, it, it takes away personal responsibility from us. It turns the woman into the temptress um, and it takes personal responsibility from us to ever actually have to grow and improve in any area of our, you know, in this part of our lives, if, if that's an issue we have. Um, and puts... And it automatically yeah. prejudices us against any contribution of a woman. And since a lot of Correct. these accusations obviously are coming from women, I mean, our first instinct, you can't tell me, oh, let me rephrase this. It's sad to me this investigation that took place happens once the guy dies 
not over the 15 or 20 years where these accusations were coming about. Correct. Why does it? Why do we wait to? Well, now he's protected. He's in the grave. If we find out anything, it doesn't hurt him. Well, well, what about the women that were hurt for fifteen or twenty years? It's just all right. We need to get to a point where we make safe spaces on both directions, where we can address these in healthy ways that don't automatically destroy the career of the individual that the accusation comes to, but at the same time doesn't minimize the accusation and just sweep it under the rug and not deal with it, saying, "Well, that's just what ladies do." It's like. Again, when I said we need to be more proactive in how we're going to address these things, and, and there's a lot of issues that are, con, you know, kind of merging in the Ravi Zacharias issue. But that's with anything because life is messy, mm-hmm. life is complicated. It's never just one thing. So I think you know? I think I would I, I think I would say as far as what 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 does that mean for the listener? Because um, I don't want to just shoot down ideas either. I just really wanted to say that about the Billy Graham rule. Um, I think. Um, the best thing that anyone who's a part of a faith community right now can do is sit down with either other leadership or, you know, other members, family, whomever. And in your family, it may be worth having this conversation too and asking what the structure and system of accountability looks like in your, in your organization. And not just what does it look like, identifying the current one, deciding uh, the next thing to do is keep in mind any principles that you need to act on. For example, any system of accountability should respect gender, should respect life, should respect uh, people's agency, and um, and should respect people's humanity, right? It, there, there should be grace and accountability where appropriate. But I think, so I, I would say that as you have those discussions and trying to build a new sense of, or, you know, new system or structure for accountability or improving the one that you have, I think those that question is how do we respect every party involved in a situation? What do we do in X situation? Several churches, schools have fire escape plans. They have fire exits. They have all these different plans in place for what to do in different emergencies. What is your version of that plan for when someone is caught in something bad? And when I say caught, I don't mean that you've caught them, though there is something to say about that. But I mean like someone is stuck in something. They've, they're asking for help. What is the help that you can provide for them in your own community? What does that look like? And I think those questions are worth asking. And if you, if you don't have a community to ask, then ask yourself what you would do. And, in, and, and th- that's that chance for introspection, I think, to, to, to decide how will I respond in situations like this and what can I do to support people as best as I can so that they don't feel the need to go down the path that or a path like Ravi. So that's what I would say there. I hope that's helpful. But yeah, that that's how I think I would end my whole tirade on this is I think there are some clear conversations and direct conversations that we can have moving forward. Yeah. And I would just a second that I do agree with that. And I would say just to add on to the introspection part, this is a point where we need to sit down and examine, I mean, not in great detail, but what we know about the Ravi situation and others, we need to we need to shine a light into our own hearts and go kind of like I was thinking at the beginning, what are my insecurities that if not dealt with could lead me down similar paths, mm-hmm. right? And not, not again, taking away agency. It's not that, quote, slippery slope, like you said. It doesn't mean just because you have a problem, you're immediately going to be abusing women, but you need to address them because you don't know what your choices are going to end up having you do. Because the you making a choice now is not the same you of tomorrow that would be making that same choice. So we're the product of our decisions, our habits, our yep. culture. So we need to 
you know, I, we need to have that introspective question, where do I need accountability? How do I get accountability? What would help me with accountability? And not these silly things necessarily like the 90s again. Get an accountability partner. And it's just a, you know, an opportunity for you never to change. And you find the one guy that's like, I totally get it, man. Yep. And then you, you know, trigger each other all the time. Changes. Yep. Nothing ever changes every time. Yeah, exactly. So I, I don't mean that, but we need to start having a conversation about how can I make better choices? How can I be find a safe environment, not just for myself, but in have foster that healthy, safe culture with others around me and my faith community and my work environment, et cetera. And don't use tomorrow or the past as an excuse for the present. Yes. Right. Too many with Ravi or anything. We either use the past as an excuse for what we know, or we excuse the future when they are alive about what they could potentially do to ignore the present. And we, if we had dealt with stuff in the present, it could have solved a lot of issues. Yep. So, um, absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that. Um, and I, you know, I, once again, take the, take the, the reminder to pray for each other and pray for your pastors, pray for your leaders. Um, but also remember that what Ravi did was bad, not because, not just because he was a leader. It's not that, that it's not the fact that he was a ministry leader who did bad things is what makes it bad. It's the bad things he did that makes it bad. The whole him having no, a bad platform, is still bad. him having a ministry, all you know, all of the that just is a different layer. It's an extra layer of bad, or like that's a different element of bad that's included into it because now there's the added element of a betrayal to the people that you lead and the people that you influence. Fully understand that, but like that's not. I, I'm so sick of this whole like it's so much worse because a pastor did it. Like when when a pastor says a you know, well, pastor, you can't say bad words, but I can because I'm just a member. Like, don't give me that. It's we're we're all equal. Um, now, yeah, if it's bad for me, it's also bad. Correct. For you. It mean, doesn't like it, it. Like, ask yourself what makes it bad for the pastor to do it or a leader to do it. Um, aside from like the platform side, because that side may be different for you. But what? Why is it bad? Why is it something that in that context is bad? Because it it's probably bad for you too. And I think that's that's the the projection is annoying to me. I would say, um, but I you know. It's bad for all of us if any of us do stuff like that. So, and I'm, I'm not talking honest mistakes or dumb stuff you did as a teenager that didn't obviously like directly victimize someone. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. I'm talking about this kind of heinous um, victimization of others and um, clear, clear abuse of, of position of power and abuse of others. Um, so I think there's a lot of sobering lessons for us in all of this. I think there's, I think there are some clear conversations we can have with people in our lives, our communities and, and ourselves, uh, coming from this. And I hope that we've given you some amount of perspective or something that can help you as you move forward. Um, but with that, Henry, any final thoughts you want to leave listeners with before we sign off? Just make wise decisions. Amen. You heard it. You heard it here first, a beautiful faith. Just make wise decisions. Uh, with that, thank you everyone for listening and uh, for being a part of the journey with us and, and our journey as we kind of work through some of this stuff. Uh, we appreciate your uh, we appreciate your time um, and we appreciate your listenership. And please uh, write us in, give us feedback on how we're doing and, and um, anything you think we could improve and uh, anything that you think we're doing well. Hold us accountable as well. Um, so with that, thank you everyone. And we will see you next time. <laughs>